0: Yes, that is incredibly important. If we do not have a biblical worldview, we will be deceived. Notice I didn't say Christian worldview, I said biblical worldview. There are many worldviews out there that might be labeled Christian that are actually not consistent with the Bible. This is why we need discernment. This is why we need to look at the text. What we have seen all along the way so far is that a biblical worldview, that is a proper and biblical understanding of the world and of mankind and of the events of history, always begins with God. In order to truly understand anything about this world, we must begin with God. And so Genesis has taught us from the very beginning, from the very first words, that God exists, that he is the creator of everyone and everything, and that he created out of nothing by the word of his power. And as the creator, we also have learned that God is the owner or the sovereign ruler of all things, that he makes the rules about how creation is to function and how people are to behave. And along the way, we have also seen clearly that God created everything with a specific design and purpose. So from these foundational chapters of Genesis, we learn about God and his design for the world. We learn about mankind and his purpose. We learn about what is truly wrong with the world, and we begin to learn what God is doing to make it right. We learn that most of the answers that the world comes up with in order to fix the human condition are not reliable at all. Because they are absent the mind of God and a true understanding of the way things really are. But God's Word tells us exactly what these things are. And so in these chapters, we have seen that foundational truth about who God is who we are, about what has gone wrong with the world and what God plans to do to make it right. But we have also seen practical applications or or practical implications for how we should think in light of all these things, how we should think about God, what we should think about creation. What we should think about is the meaning of life, the design of marriage, the design and purpose of gender, the sanctity of human life. The design of work and worship and government and culture and cities and languages. We are seeing glimpses of all of this in these foundational chapters of Genesis. And in it all, we find the origin of sin, the fundamental human problem. And we find the beginning of the gospel, God's complete solution god's plan for redeeming his people from sin and restoring his creation so as we have come to chapters 6 through 9 of genesis we find the account of noah and the great flood but as i've said before we have learned along the way that this account of noah and the great flood really isn't about noah nor is it about the great flood the heart of these chapters and the primary focus, the primary purpose is God Himself. These chapters are intended to show us who God is, what he is like, what he thinks about the state of the world, and what he does about it. And so chapters 6 through 9 in this account of Noah and the flood teach us about God. And as they do that, they, they we, we see this contrast, this This constant tension and struggle between two aspects of God's character. In Genesis 6 and 7, we see most of the emphasis given to God's judgment and justice in relationship to sin. We see the severity of His judgment, the seriousness of sin as God wipes out all creation in a catastrophic, universal, and complete flood. But in the midst of it all, we do see a glimpse of mercy and grace as he rescues and preserves one family. And then in chapters 8 and 9, the emphasis shifts now from God's justice and judgment to his mercy and grace. With the severity of God's judgment still in mind, something they will never forget, We now see God's mercy and grace on clear display as God now prepares Noah and his family and all who would follow them for life in this new geography, this new world that exists after the flood. And so I think it's reasonable to say that the story of Noah and the flood reaches its climax here in chapter 9, verses 1 through 17 as God blesses Noah, and as he establishes his covenant with him. And this is no small thing. This, this is something that has implications, not just for Noah and for his family, but for everyone who has walked the face of the earth since. And so let's look at our text for today. We'll start at chapter 9, verses, verse 1. We'll read through verse 17. We began this last week, and we'll finish it up, Lord willing, this morning, chapter nine, verse one. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Everything God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. As Noah and his family come off the ark and face this new world, And this new life with a mixture of excitement and fear, no doubt, what they need more than anything is the reassurance that God is with them and has set his favor upon them. In chapter 8, we saw the comfort of God's providence and revelation and fellowship, that indeed God's favor was upon them and God would be near them and he would care for them in this new life. And now in chapter 9, verses 1 through 17, all of that becomes even clearer as God communicates directly to Noah and to his sons. God speaks to them. And what God says here is a reminder that God is the one who created the world. And in the same way, it is God who is reestablishing their lives again in this world in chapter 9. And as he does so, As we began to see last week, he lays out some foundational principles by which this new world will operate. These principles establish the beginning of God's law, yes, but they also demonstrate God's compassion and care that he will have toward those whom he has saved. And what God lays out here, as we will see, is universal. Which means it applies to all of creation. And it is everlasting, which we'll see means that it applies from this point onward to the end of the world. We began looking at this passage last week in two simple sections there was God's blessing in verses 1 through 7, and then God's covenant, which we'll look at today in verses 8 through 17. Just by way of review, We saw first God's blessing. We read in verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons. That's something that they desperately needed to hear in those moments, to know that they were not like the rest of the world. They were not cast off from God's presence, but that as God reestablishes the earth, now he is going to bless them. That this new world was going to be marked by God's blessing. And in verses 1-7, through we saw, A glimpse of what that's going to mean for them what god says here is his blessing not just on noah and not just on noah's family but on all humanity that would follow until the end of the world that blessing is displayed or described as we saw last week in five specific ways he describes it in terms of procreation that is The blessing and the call of God to continue to multiply and fill the earth, showing that God's purpose for mankind still stands as it did at the original creation. Secondly, we saw prominence. That is, again, the blessing and the call of God for mankind to subdue the earth and to exercise dominion over it, to cultivate it and develop it, and to use all creation, even the animal kingdom, For the benefit of mankind, continuing that creation mandate that God laid out at the beginning of the world. And then thirdly, we saw provision. That is God's abundant supply of resources for man's life and his needs and even his enjoyment of the world. But we also saw, fourthly, a prohibition, specific instruction to keep man from abusing creation or harming god's design or using god's creation in an unhealthy way and then fifthly we saw protection where god establishes a new protection of the sanctity of the of human life where god establishes a new order to protect mankind in his life and all of that the procreation prominence provision prohibition and protection all of this was a powerful statement to Noah and to all generations to follow that God's desire is for mankind to flourish on the earth, to thrive. And it's a picture of God's determination to make sure it happens, sometimes even despite man's best efforts otherwise. You look at the history of mankind and you almost get the sense that we've been trying to work ourselves out of existence for all the centuries since. And yet God's promise and God's design still stands, that we still thrive, and we still are able to excel in this world by His grace. After displaying God's powerful and dreadful and, de- and terrifying judgment on sinful mankind in the flood, what we're seeing now is God reassuring those that He has saved that His favor is upon them that He desires that they flourish, that He desires that they enjoy the world that He has made, and that His his disposition toward them is still one of grace and blessing. But with this new world come new challenges and new dangers. And so with God's blessing also comes God's protection and His important instruction on how to enjoy and, and experience God's blessing to the fullest. So right here at this new beginning, as they step into their new life, as they look into this new world, God richly blesses them. And as we saw in this passage, God reminds them of their exalted status, their responsibility, and their privilege in the world, and that he wants mankind to be fruitful. And most of all, He reminds us of His own presence and His own care for mankind. What we see here is that God has blessed the earth in spite of our sinfulness. He has blessed the earth and He has blessed all mankind. And He has done so in tangible and practical ways so that even in our mundane and daily activities and even in the midst of the sinful effects in this world, we can look around and still see evidence of God's grace and blessing. And behind that physical and tangible blessing is God's spiritual blessing, which comes to light as we look at God's covenant in verses 8 through 17. God's covenant. Now, this is the first mention of a covenant in Scripture specifically. But covenants are a prominent feature throughout all of Scripture. They are crucial to the progress of God's revelation of Himself to His people and of His plan of redemption. So I want us to talk a little bit about what a covenant is in terms of Scripture so that we understand what God's doing here when He talks to Noah. We don't think today much in terms of covenants do we when i throw out the word covenant maybe what comes to mind for you is a business contract or an hoa covenant we all love those right you need to move to my neighborhood you'll love my hoa covenant our dues are like 25 a year if you happen to remember to drop them in the box if you happen to know where the box is That's a great HOA agreement right there, isn't it? Maybe that's what you think of when you think of a covenant. Or maybe you think of a marriage covenant. Or possibly a peace treaty or trade agreement between nations. And certainly all of those things contain some aspect of the idea of a covenant. But the idea is even stronger in Scripture. As scripture presents it, the covenant is much more serious than just a contract. To break a contract today might demand some sort of penalty, and we actually calculate that, right? I recently just uh, changed internet providers in our house because we got a better deal on a plan, and I had to do some research into what would be the penalty for breaking this service with the other company, right? We had to weigh that and determine, okay, is this a penalty I'm, I'm willing to pay? But to break a contract or a covenant in the ancient world was much more serious than that. It was a matter of life and death many times. And sometimes it was even a matter of the life or death of a whole group of people that were represented in that covenant. So a covenant, as the scripture presents it, is binding. Binding. And everything about one's character and well-being rests on the keeping of that covenant. Now, as we look at Scripture as a whole, we look at the big picture and how God progressively reveals Himself and His redemptive plan to His people, we see at least five covenants. Uh, different Christians will debate how how many exactly there are, but we see at least three, some would even say as many as seven, we see at least the Noahic covenant, which we're looking at here, the Abrahamic covenant, which comes just a few chapters later, the Mosaic covenant, think Moses, the Davidic covenant, and then ultimately in the New Testament we see the New Covenant. Some would also look back at God's command to Adam in the Garden of Eden and say, well, that was the Adamic covenant. And uh, the word covenant isn't used there, but there are some of the elements there. But as God progressively reveals himself throughout Scripture by the use of covenants, this is a prominent feature of how God reveals himself. And he does it. He he uses covenants in two ways. There are two kinds of covenants that we see in Scripture. One is the covenant of works, and one is a covenant of grace. And those might, you, you might be able to figure out exactly what that means. A covenant of works is what we would call a conditional covenant, right? It's a mutual agreement. It is, it is an expectation that is laid out for both sides Of the contract. So the idea there is the great king, and I don't mean really good king, I mean the conquering king has conquered a land, and he is now allowing a vassal king to reign on behalf of the great king in this little region. And the great king brings this covenant, and it says, I am great king so-and-so, I have conquered so-and-so, And as a result, here are the stipulations. You will behave this way. You will pay tribute this much, this often. You will behave like this. You will follow these orders. You will remain faithful. And you will give your allegiance to this king in these ways. And then there were the blessings and curses that would be stated. If you do this, then my blessing will be upon you and I will provide you food, and I will provide you security, and I will provide you protection. If you do not, then these curses will be upon you, and they are often gruesome. And some covenants, they were even said to cut a covenant, and the sealing of those covenants often involved the shedding of blood, sometimes in gruesome and disgusting ways, as a vivid demonstration of what would happen to anyone who breaks this covenant. This is much bigger than just putting your John Hancock on a line and going on your merry way, right? And this is much bigger than just two parties meeting together at the middle. This is authoritative. This is almost totalitarian. That is much behind this idea of a covenant, and especially a conditional covenant where one party lays out the stipulations for the other, but there's another kind of covenant that God uses as he reveals himself in scripture, and it is an unconditional covenant, that covenant of grace. This is where the conquering or the sovereign party does not make any demands on the other party, but makes promises and stakes his own reputation and stakes his own life and stakes his own well-being on the keeping of that. That's what God is doing here in Genesis chapter 9 with this covenant with Noah and all who would follow him. And so that brings us to the text before us, which is God's establishment of the Noahic covenant. And we will see, as we work through this text, we will see that this covenant indeed is a unilateral covenant. Can you read that? Unilateral covenant. It is an unconditional covenant. It is a universal covenant. And it is an unbreakable covenant. It's unilateral in that it is initiated and established exclusively by God. Mankind doesn't come to Him. He comes to us. He establishes this. It is unconditional in that it has no requirement, no conditions for man to keep. It is universal. It applies to all men and all creation. And it is unbreakable, lasting for as long as the earth remains. And it is secured by the power and trustworthiness and character of God himself. In other words, it doesn't rest on our reliability. It rests on God's, which is far stronger. And so in verses 8 through 10, then, we see this covenant represented. What I mean by that is anytime a covenant is made, there are two parties represented. And when it was made between kings then inherent in that covenant means that all the nations and and all the the realms that that those kings represent are all included here. So who are the parties involved in this covenant? verse 8 we read, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him. This is God himself speaking now. Elohim, the, the almighty God, the sovereign Lord over heaven and earth, the creator and ruler of all things. He has not sent an ambassador to speak on his behalf. He has not sent a negotiator. He is speaking directly. And not only that, but in verse 9, we see that he is initiating and establishing this covenant all by himself alone. He says, behold, I establish my covenant. And the emphasis there is, is on that word I. I myself establish my covenant. And so now rather than, than raining down the fury of heaven's judgment as he did in chapter 7, now God himself is pouring out heaven's peace. And we see that this is indeed a unilateral covenant. This is moving all one direction. From God towards man. And so we already begin to see a little synopsis, a little glimpse of how God relates to mankind. We're beginning to see more about how salvation works and how mankind is reconciled to, to God. Mankind could never earn or achieve peace with God on his own, nor would mankind ever seek it. It's important for us to remember. It's vital for us to remember. Peace with God is something only God can achieve. And it is something only God can initiate. And in His grace, that is what He is doing. And that is what he does. That is the kind of God he is. And then we see in chapter 8 that the recipient is Noah and his sons, but not to them alone. As we also see that they stand as representatives for their immediate family and for all the generations that would follow. For God adds in in verse 9 that this covenant applies to you and your offspring after you. Who does that include? there anybody on this earth who's not offspring of Noah? Can't be. He was the only one left, he and his sons. All humanity ever since has been descendant from Noah and his family. And so not only is this a unilateral covenant coming from God himself alone, but it is also a universal covenant, which means it applies to all mankind. Now, most of the covenants in Scripture apply to only a specific group of people, right? The nation of Israel, for instance, or the church. But this covenant applies to all humanity, and not only to all humanity. This unilateral, universal covenant also includes the rest of the living creation. In verse 10, God says, "...and with every living creature..." that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. And applied here is their offspring as well, as it was with Noah. So here, essentially, is Noah standing as a representative for all mankind and all living creatures to follow. And here is God, Reaching down and initiating and establishing a one-sided promise of heaven's blessing. And that brings us next to consider the covenant established. What is the content of this covenant? What is this unilateral, unconditional, universal, and unbreakable promise that God makes to all creation? Well, again, verse 9. He says, Behold, I myself establish my covenant with you. Verse 11, he says again, I myself establish my covenant with you. Verse 15, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature. Notice he keeps saying, my covenant, my covenant. I will remember my covenant. It is a promise and a divine determination that comes from God himself and is secured in his own character. I, the almighty Lord of heaven, the one who created all things, the one who has just poured out my power before you to see the one who has preserved you in a supernatural way, the one who is reestablishing this covenant, I myself take the responsibility for this promise he says and here is the promise he says in verse 11 and 15 never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh it is a very self-confident thing and it is a very dangerous thing For anyone to make a promise about the weather. Right? Even weathermen don't do that. Usually. There's always a caveat. God says, what you saw happen back in chapter 7, I'm sure he didn't call it chapter 7 to Noah. What you saw happen in that flood, I did that completely that was all me and so you know i have the power to do it and i have the power not to do it and it's never going to happen again that's god himself saying and that should take our minds when he says that back to chapter 8 verses 21 and 22 when he makes another promise where god promises that he will never again destroy the earth as long as the seasons roll on. There's another thing that we can think about as we look at the fall colors. As the seasons roll on, God's promise stands. But here, God gives more detail. He gives more specifics about the promise that He is making. And honestly, if we want to think a little critically here, it almost sounds like God's backing off His promise, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Or is it just me? Never again will I destroy the earth. But then it sounds almost like he's he's backing off, right? He's he's adding some qualifiers, right? No, I will never again destroy the earth by water in a flood that's universal. I'll never do it in exactly that same way again. And you're thinking, okay, what kind of promise is that? Right? Okay, you're just going to do it differently. Well, Scripture does reveal that he will destroy the earth, and he will do it in a different way, but he will not do it while the seasons continue to roll on, as we see in chapter eight. The next time he does it is going to be the end of the world and the beginning of the eternal state. So. We know better than to think God is actually backing off a promise here, making a grandiose promise and then qualifying it, right? God's not an American politician. That's what American politicians do. That's not what God does, and we know that. So what's going on here? Well, let's think about Noah and his family, and let's think about their relationship to rain. As far as we can tell, the only time in their lives which were hundreds of years old, the only time in their lives they had ever seen rain was when the flood happened. And God destroyed everything on the earth. So, what do you think is going to go through their minds the next time they see rain? What would go through your mind? Oh no, where's the ark? Is it still seaworthy? Right? That's what's going to go through their minds. You can imagine that, right? They'd be terrified. But remember, this whole passage is in the context of God blessing mankind and preserving him in this new world, in this new landscape. And rain is now going to be a normal part of the climate. Rain is now going to be a normal part of life in this world. And God reassures Noah that it is going to be okay. The rain is going to be a good and normal thing for the earth, so they do not have to be afraid. It is not a sign that God is going to judge the earth again in this way. He's not going to do that again. Yes, Scripture reveals that there will be a future judgment, and it will involve the destruction of the world as we know it, but that future judgment is at the end of the age, and it involves a clearly more direct involvement from God than just a weather pattern. And so God's promise here is that until that day, there will be no more universal destruction in this world. So mankind does not need to fear for his existence or think that behind every unpleasant experience or natural disaster in the world is the end of the world. You say, well, Of course not. But do we not, as a race, a human race, tend to fall into that trap? This principle applies for us today. This is a universal covenant, which means it applies to all mankind to the end of the age. Now think about our own hysteria today. We hear all the time about the dangers of climate change. And we can debate. How much the climate is really changing, whether it's getting warmer or cooler and where all of this is happening. And truth be told, there is change happening around the world. That's part of living on this planet. Some have even said, though, that the world will end within 12 years if we do not stop climate change. I've heard jokes about buying oceanfront property in Kansas after the polar ice caps melt. And there has been constant speculation about how much of the earth is going to be underwater in just a few years or how much of it is going to be destroyed by something else like forest fires or greenhouse gases or hurricanes or earthquakes or the election or overpopulation or something else. We're constantly worried about wiping ourselves out. But the promise that God makes to Noah here not just here in chapter 9, but also back in chapter 8, verses 21 and 22, is a reminder today of God's promise that no such thing is going to happen to the earth. And while those things might all happen on a local level, they are simply the natural events of a world after the fall. Yes, we need to be careful. Yes, we need to be vigilant. Yes, we need to take appropriate safety precautions against these things, but there is a point that God is making here in the big picture, and it's this. Mankind is not a threat to the existence of the earth, and the earth is not a threat to the existence of mankind. Remember, this is in the context of telling mankind, go be fruitful multiply fill the earth and use it to the full and enjoy it saying don't live in fear God is reassuring mankind in every generation that this world and all of mankind though still affected by sin has been blessed by God the earth has been given to man to cultivate to use to to prosper and to enjoy until Jesus comes The next thing I want us to notice is that there is no command given in this covenant. There are no conditions. God doesn't tell mankind He will do these things as long as we behave ourselves. He doesn't even say that He will do these things as long as we worship Him. He just says, I will do these things. And in fact, He makes this promise in spite of the fact That he knows, as he said in chapter 8, verse 21, that the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So this is a unilateral and a universal covenant, but it is also an unconditional covenant. It is made by God with with mankind with no conditions attached. But notice also that it is an unbreakable covenant. That is, it is everlasting covenant. God calls it, in verse 16, the everlasting covenant. But that doesn't mean that it is eternal. It means that it is unbreakable and it will last to the end of the age. The qualifier on that is found in chapter 8, verse 22. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. While the earth remains, all of these things are in place. There will come a time when God will judge and destroy the earth, but that will be a direct and total destruction of the earth at the end of the age. And we're not talking about rains coming on the earth. We're talking about angels from heaven coming on the earth and destroying. Okay, We're talking about massive supernatural stuff. And when that happens, all mankind will give an account to God and then after that the eternal state will begin the promise here is that until then we are to enjoy the earth we are to fill it with image bearers of god and we are to make full and beneficial use of it for the good of mankind god has set his common grace on this world and on all mankind yes even those who are still in their sin." It's not His saving grace, but it is His common grace It makes this world livable, makes this world enjoyable. Do you see the common grace and blessing of God around you as you live in this world? This is a testimony of God's mercy, of His patience, of His sovereign grace, that He would still bless the earth in this way knowing how sinful we are. Now, after seeing all of that, I want us to notice now the covenant signed. The covenant signed. I told you before that most covenants were signed and sealed with some demonstration of blood, right? Well, this one wasn't. This one is a lot nicer. Because this is a promise. It's not a threat. This is a promise from God to the people. What is the sign that this covenant is genuine and that it is still in effect? The text tells us of God's unique sign, which is a testimony that this is a genuine promise and it is trustworthy. What is that sign? You know it. It's the rainbow. That's a cool one, isn't it? Anybody see a rainbow this week in the last couple of days? I don't know. I haven't, but we watch for them all the time. It's really cool. I like to see the double rainbows as if God's promise could get any more secure than it is. We read in verse 12, and God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. Verse 13, I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, it's not just a a scientific anomaly. It is a scientific anomaly designed for by God with a purpose. And we read in verses 16 and 17, when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember. Doesn't mean he forgets otherwise. It means that it reaffirms and reestablishes and confirms this is still in place. I will remember the everlasting covenant between God and, the, and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. You know, it is unfortunate that the rainbow has been hijacked in today's society, and it has been used to celebrate the rejection of God along with his design and his law and his blessing. And it is quite ironic that it has been hijacked in such a way, hasn't it? Because God's blessing and patience still rests on the ones who hijack it. What a turn of events. (laughs) What a display of God's mercy and patience and sovereign care. But the rainbow, as God established it, is a sign. It means it's a symbol. It's a mark. It's a guarantee. It's evidence. It is the assurance that God has made a promise and that He will keep that promise. It is as sure as He is God. And it's a reminder of His promise that He would not destroy the world in such a way again. But if beyond that, it is also a promise. It is a picture of peace with God. Some have even said that the, the bow is, is a symbol of peace. A a warrior's bow set at rest. I don't know if we can take it that far or not, but the thought's there. This is a symbol of, of mankind at peace with God in this situation and of rest from his judgment. It is a picture of his mercy and his patience extended to mankind, even toward those who persist in their sin and reject God. The rainbow is a picture of God's grace in granting time and opportunity for mankind to repent of his sin and to believe in him. And it is all given by God, not because of man's goodness or worthiness or because we've met him in the middle. It's because of God himself and because of his amazing grace. So is the rainbow a picture of God's promises? Yes, it is. But it's more. It's a picture of God's peace and His patience and of the continued opportunity for mankind to repent and believe in Him. Now, As we come to the end of this account of Noah and the great flood in these chapters, as we consider what it has taught us about God primarily and then about ourselves and about sin and about the world in which we live, what we have seen, is what god thinks about sinful mankind and how he deals with sin in terrible judgment but we have also seen his mercy and his grace and his love in rescuing some from that judgment and preserving them and blessing them not because they are better than anyone else but because of his mercy and in the text we have looked at today We see God display spectacular grace towards sinful mankind through blessing and covenant. This post-flood world bears evidence of God's judgment all over the place. The same beauty and glory that we enjoy in the turning of the leaves to different colors is also evidence of death. Think about that as you drive up the parkway. We see that evidence of judgment, but it is also full, this world is full of the unmistakable evidence of God's blessing and care. Creation functioning in a way that promotes the health and prosperity of what God has created. God has woven into the foundational principles of this world His good design and his mandate for mankind. He has woven into the foundational principles of this world his high valuation of man's life and his incredible grace and mercy and patience toward us. And what's more, wrapped up in this account and placed into the bigger story of redemption throughout Scripture, we see further revelation about God's design and plan to send a redeemer to accomplish ultimate victory over sin in this world and in his people sin has not yet been eradicated from the world noah is still a sinner and we're going to see that as we get to the end of chapter 9 we're going to see how quickly the ugliness of sin springs up again But it's a picture, a development, a growing understanding that there is salvation to come that is perfect and ultimate and complete. There is a new illustration of salvation given in the ark. And there is a new glimpse of the one who would save his people from their sins. And in his blessing and covenant on the earth, there is a glimpse of what eternal life means for those whom God saves. So in this passage, in this covenant, we see one more step in preparation for Jesus himself, the son of God who saves his people from their sins. And as the story of scripture and the story of redemption continues, we will see as one preacher explained that countless blood sacrifices would point to his certain coming the coming of Christ, an innocent life for guilty lives, provided to man by God himself. He says Christ would bear the judgment of God for man rather than the floodwaters having to come back again. Every rainbow would declare God's covenant with mankind, that mankind would never again be wiped out by water and reduced to only eight. The earth will indeed be judged again one day by fire. But then millions of people, not just eight, will find their refuge in the Messiah, whose shed blood would deliver them from the wrath that they deserve. They will inhabit a future universe, a new world with new heavens, where righteousness has taken up residence. And there, like the world that exists today, will be the faithful God, Ruling over it all with blessing and love and mercy. And it is that God who promises that that world will come. Friends, what we have seen in this account of Noah and the flood is that sin is real and it is serious. And if you are in your sin, the judgment of God is real and it is serious and you are exposed. You are condemned already. And you cannot stand in the day of judgment before God. But we have also seen that God is patient and long-suffering. That bow has been set down. And it is a picture of His grace, His mercy, His patience toward you. Toward you! In your sin. And it is a call. While there is still time to place your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation and for deliverance from that judgment. Is there any reason to continue on rejecting Him and remaining in your sin? When you think about the terror of His judgment and the glory of the world to come, is there any reason you can think of that you wouldn't respond Scripture teaches, today is the day of salvation. My friends, today is the day to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Do not rest your soul in this world. It's hopeless. And do not perish with this world. As the songwriter said, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful things. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Christians, are you looking unto Jesus today? And are the things of this world growing strangely dim as you look on the light of His glory and grace? Are you living in this world according to God's blessing and covenant? Are you striving to be faithful here, enjoying this world as a gift from God for His glory, and yet looking ever more eagerly to the world that is to come when we see our Savior face to face? What God teaches us about Himself and about His redemptive plan in these chapters is meant to point our attention and our hope there, not here. And that will make all the difference in how we live in this world today, won't it? And it will be strangely different than the way the rest of mankind and the rest of the world lives around us. Because this world is vanishing away. And so is everyone who's not in Christ. So, Christians, let us live faithfully. In this world, with our eyes fixed on Christ and our hopes set on the next. Let's pray.